Will you please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 50, the last chapter in the book of Genesis. And if you're able to do so, I ask you to stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. We do this because we believe this is Holy Scripture, divinely inspired and preserved for us today. Genesis chapter 50, we'll read from verse 14 to 21. Here now is the word of the Lord. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to their father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of God your Father, beg you to forgive our sin. And when Joseph received this message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph and said, Look, we are your slaves. But Joseph replied, Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Now don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Thank you, and please be seated. Today we're completing the final message of this five part series that's titled Potholes in Our Road of Sanctification. And we've talked about this process of sanctification that begins the moment you first believe and it goes all the way to when you take your last breath. It's a path in which God conforms us more and more to the likeness of Christ. And very often it's not a straight line. It has curves and twists and paved and unpaved sections. And of course it has potholes. And we've covered how some of these potholes are the result just of living in a fallen world. Some are the result of specific issues that we face, like unforgiveness and our own idolatry. And in, un in other cases, it's potholes that have been drilled by other people, often through the, the hurts they've inflicted on us. And in many cases, they are people who we would describe as modern-day Pharisees. All of these are real issues but we need to view them through the recognition of a specific lens and understanding that God will persevere our faith through to the end. And yet, that being said, there may be points along the way in which we struggle with the things that happen in our lives or the lives of people we've come to know, even the life of our nation, even things that we see happening in the lives of people around the world. When you think about it, watching our news broadcasts, we could easily think that God has basically walked away from planet Earth. But we need to guard our, guard our hearts. We need to guard our hearts because if we don't, we could easily lose a vital aspect of our daily walk of faith. And what is that vital aspect? Well, I would say that it's what differentiates a believer from somebody who doesn't believe. More specifically, when you and I face our death, how are we different from somebody who does not believe? Now, certainly we're, we're different in that by God's grace, we stand forgiven 
It is not by our works, but it's a huge difference because their lack of faith has condemned them. But why, why are we different? What do we have that they don't, is what I'm trying to say. In its most basic definition, they don't have any hope for anything beyond the grave. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the hope. Amen. Indeed, I think we have the assurance that comes through the saving power of Christ. Sometimes I refer to this as hope with a capital H. And because of this, and because of our faith in Christ alone, we have hope for eternity. So with that distinction in mind, I ask you to think about the points in your life in which you've been on the, the verge of losing that sense of hope. I think in different ways, most of us have been there at some point or another. Think about those times in which you experienced things in life, either personally or you saw things in life, that you had a terrible time accepting that God would permit such a thing. And you wrestled with a thought that basically said, Lord, why have you allowed this to happen? Last year in one of my messages, I did share with you a time when I wrestled heavily with some of this, and it was when I was completing the seminary program. I was in my mid-50s, driving every week from Midland over to Grand Rapids, and sitting in class with students, most of whom were 30 years younger than me. They had a nickname for me in the class, by the way. They called me Gramps. <laughs> but one of the things that seminary study does is it forces you, as future ministers, to wrestle with things that over the years you just haven't really wanted to wrestle with because the people you minister to are going to be wrestling with them. And during that time, I regularly met with one of my pastors from Midland Evangelical Free Church, a man from Austin, Texas originally, Pastor Gibb, about six and a half feet tall, with a very slow, gentle Texas drawl as he talked. And one of the times that I was meeting with him, I was particularly wrestling with some of these issues. And I, I was asking him a series of questions that probably were unanswerable questions. And he could tell that I was just really almost locking up emotionally with these things. They were all questions that essentially asked, why does God permit these kinds of things to happen? And I remember he, he stopped me and he looked at me and he put his hand out like this. He didn't point at me, but he just kind of put his hand up like this. In that very slow Texas drawl, he said to me, Jim, is God good? And I can tell you I paused. And I continued to pause. And it was almost as if he had pulled the pebble out of the dike. And my emotions just gushed because I realized something. I had allowed Satan to have me begin to question whether God was always good. My silence in that moment was the answer, and I was ashamed. But at the same time, it was a very human response, a fallen human response, but nonetheless, a very human response. And he shared with me, with such professionalism, a number of verses to just remind me what I already knew of. His position at the church, this was a large church, and five or six pastors on staff. His position was the care pastor. He was in charge of the spiritual care of the congregation. 
And I can tell you that it was just a very emotional moment. And his term was, he says, you have so much stuff, so much junk stored up in your trash can, your emotional trash can. Emptying it out, quite honestly, was like violently regurgitating, in which the build-up to it and in the middle of it is awful. And once it's out, it's incredible, the sense of relief. That's the only way to describe it. I don't mean to be gross. But the point was is that I didn't think I was losing my salvation, but somehow I began to wonder whether God was turning his back on me and somehow I was just not acceptable to him anymore. Somehow Satan had fooled me into believing a lie. And I should have known better, but it happened to me during the time that I had never spent more time studying his word and the doctrines of the church. As he helped guide me through this process, I began to feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, and I saw that my walk of faith, my road of sanctification, had potholes in it. And some of them were my own doing, and some of them were things that had been done to me by others over the years. But after a few weeks, I began to see that this pothole-filled road of faith was navigable. And the reason why it was navigable is because Pastor Gibb helped me to realize that I wasn't in the driver's seat. I wasn't in the driver's seat. God was. I was the passenger. I had lost sight of that. And because of that, I had lost the sense of hope. Getting it back was a profoundly moving experience. So I'm going to share with you three stories. Three very brief stories. First one, a man in his early 30s felt the call of God to go and teach in an international school in Benghazi, Libya. And he was loved by his students. And they were coming up on a break. The break was about a month-long break. And so he sent his wife and his young son back here to the States. He stayed on there for exam week. Well, one evening he was out walking and some men pull, pulled up in a van and started shooting. And they drove away, leaving his body on the street. He was only 33 years old. Next story is of a young man in his 20s. Seminary study. Feeling the call of the Lord to serve as a pastor. Three months before completing his Master of Divinity degree. An MDiv, they call it. It's 96 graduate hours. Generally speaking, that level of graduate hours earns you a PhD in many subjects, but it's only a master's in divinity. And during that time, his marriage fell apart. His wife announced that she's leaving him. Not only has he lost his life partner, but now he will not be able to serve as a pastor in his denomination because his denomination stance is that there is no divorce allowed amongst their clergy. Third story, youth group returning from summer camp. They're only one mile from home. The bus goes out of control, hits the abutment underneath an overpass, and it rolls over. Dozens are injured, but the youth pastor, his wife, and their unborn child are killed. One of the other chaperones, who is the mother of five children, is also killed. So what do these stories have in common? There are tragedies. 
but they're all real. They all happened. They're not just stories. They're all happened. And in each case, the heart of God's people will say, why, Lord? Why? Why did you let this happen? Are you not good? And when we have these real-life stories, we ask, where's God? We ask the same questions that theologians have asked for hundreds of years. Why me? Why this? Why now? And at that point, what we have to realize is what we're really asking. We're really asking this question. Can you trust God with the details of your life? And that's where this morning's scripture comes in, the Joseph narrative. In many ways, Joseph's whole life is the Old Testament illustration of a profound New Testament truth. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. But the questions still remain. Why do these things happen? Why was that teacher killed? Why didn't the bus make it home? Why did a future pastor's marriage fall apart? There's a doctrine that helps us to understand this, at least to process it. It may not answer every question, but it helps us to accept what happens. It's called the doctrine of the providence of God. Even the word providence literally means to see before. And it refers to God's gracious oversight of his creation. I might add, even the word oversight reminds us he directs the course of affairs. He not only knows the big picture, he concerns himself with the tiniest details. Theologians call this the transcendence and the imminence of God. So I'm going to borrow five observations from a Chicago-area retired pastor named Ray Pritchard. He says there's five ways that you can understand God's providence. <clears throat> he upholds all things. He governs all events. He directs everything to its appointed end. He does this all the time and in every circumstance, and he does it for his own glory and his own purposes. Now, the doctrine of the providence of God teaches us some important truths. <clears throat> they help us to understand why things happen. First, important truth. God does care about the tiniest things in life. Nothing escapes his notice. He knows when a sparrow falls, he even knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the number of hairs that used to be on my head and the number of hairs that are on there now. <clears throat> he knew the day of your birth Quite honestly, he knows the day of your death. That's because he is a sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God. He's not surprised or caught off guard when things happen. If we lose sight of that, we don't know who God is. But secondly, God doesn't waste everything. One commentary said, there are no accidents with God. There are incidents, but there are not accidents. And these include incidents that we know are tragedies. But when these things happen, it doesn't mean he's remote and distant and disconnected. He's God, and he is always in charge. And the reason is because his ultimate purpose is to shape us into the likeness of his son. Now, I just quoted Romans 8.28, but the verse right after it is very telling. It says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
And this is the road of sanctification in which God uses difficult moments, even tragedies, to accomplish that purpose. In that sense, even the potholes in our road are being used to shape us more and more into the likeness of Christ. Now, if you're like me, you would have a natural tendency to have a reaction that basically says, but God, that's not fair. And from our point of view, that's an understandable statement, but consider the following. If God gave us what we deserved, we would be in terrible condition. We really don't want justice, because if we got justice, we would be very disappointed. What we need is grace, and that's what we receive through Christ. But arguably, the greatest injustice in human history was when Jesus was declared innocent and condemned to death. And here's the thing. God not only permitted that great injustice, he ordained it. He even prophesied it as early as Genesis chapter 3. And he did it in order to fulfill his purposes. So with all of that as a backdrop, let's go back to Joseph in Genesis chapter 50. For a quick review, remember Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Teens, you guys do remember that's what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, right? And this is one of the reasons why Joseph was the object of envy by his many brothers, because his father favored him so heavily. He even gave him this coat of many colors. Well, one day his brothers conspire together and they decide to sell Joseph. They sell him to the Midianites who happen to be passing by. And in doing so, they splash this coat of many colors with the blood of a goat in order to make it appear he'd been killed by a wild animal. And they show the coat to Jacob, their father. He believed the lie and he sadly concluded that Joseph was dead. Meanwhile, Joseph is taken by these people called the Midianites, taken to Egypt. He's sold again, this time to a man named Potiphar, who was like the head of Pharaoh's security force. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 39 tells us Joseph gained favor with Potiphar. And eventually Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of his entire household. But Potiphar's wife approaches Joseph, essentially about having an affair. Joseph refuses, saying he not only could not betray his master Potiphar, he would not sin against God. The woman persists to the point where one day she attempts to force herself on him. And Joseph fled the scene, but he left his coat behind. She was humiliated by his refusal, and so she accuses him of assaulting her. Potiphar believed his wife. Joseph is thrown in prison. But the story continues. In prison, Joseph gains the respect of his fellow prisoners, but also the respect of the guards. Eventually, two other servants, a cupbearer and a baker, are there in prison with him. Joseph befriends them, and one night they had dreams that they couldn't interpret. But with the Lord's help, Joseph interprets it, and the dreams come true exactly as Joseph said. The cupbearer was released. The baker was sentenced to death. Two more years pass with Joseph still in jail. And then Pharaoh has a dream that he couldn't understand. But the cupbearer, who had been released a couple of years earlier, 
remembers Joseph's amazing ability to interpret dreams. He tells Pharaoh about this, and Pharaoh orders Joseph to be brought before him. Joseph correctly interprets the dream and was rewarded by Pharaoh, putting him in a position that essentially was like his chief of staff. This obviously was a very different Pharaoh than the one that Moses encountered many years later. Well, then a famine strikes the entire Middle Eastern region. That fertile Delta Nile, Delta Nile, Delta Nile, <laughs> that, that, that area of the river, yeah, <laughs> was in much better shape. And so back in Israel, Jacob hears about this and he tells his sons, go to Egypt and buy some grain. So the sons go to Egypt to buy some grain, and when they go to buy some grain to complete the purchase, guess who they had to see? Joseph. Joseph. Here's the amazing thing is that <laughs> they don't recognize that it's him, but he knows it's them. And he keeps his identity secret for a bit. But then eventually he reveals it, and they're shocked, but they're also scared. They know how much they betrayed him years ago. And they know he's in a position to take revenge. But Joseph doesn't do that. And so the brothers go back and tell their elderly father that Joseph is alive. It's been 27 years that his father thought Joseph was dead. And they convince him to come to Egypt with them. And he makes the trip. And he's reunited with his son that he had given up for dead 27 years earlier. Jacob even meets Pharaoh, who says that Joseph's family can settle in Egypt for as long as they like. And the family settles there and lives in peace for many years until a new pharaoh comes in and the beginning of what we know as the Exodus narr narrative and, you know, the pharaoh that looks like Yul Brenner, that guy. <laughs> Finally, at the age of 147, Jacob dies. And now all that's left is Joseph and his brothers. And the brothers are afraid that now Joseph's finally going to take his revenge on them. But Joseph's response are the words of a man who believed in the providence of God. Here's what he said. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. When you think about everything that had happened to Joseph, how could he talk like that? Well, the only answer is he believed in the providence of God, and for that matter, I would say, the grace of God. It was Joseph who said, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. That's the classic translation. Now, <clears throat> let me say something here. This does not mean that evil isn't evil. There are terrible injustices that happen. There are terrible tragedies that happen. Don't minimize them in any way. It just means that God is still able to take the actions of mean-spirited people and use them to accomplish his plans. Joseph saw the invisible hand of God at work in his life. And Joseph understood that the Lord stood over his conniving brothers. And the Lord had permitted the entire set of incidents so that it put Joseph in just the right position at just the right time to actually save his family. It took years for God's purpose to be clear, but in the end, Joseph saw the hand of God moving behind everything that had happened to him. So let's 
Take the exit ramp from this five-week series of messages as we've talked about the potholes in our life. Imagine the potholes in Joseph's life. Our road of sanctification is not a straight line, very possibly because God doesn't want it to be a straight line. But it's exactly what we need. And while it is more difficult because all the potholes are there, our faith will see us through to the end. So let's come back to the key question of the whole five-week series of messages. The key question was, can you trust God with the details of your life? But I got thinking about this, and I had just one more thought, and that was, I think there's one word in there that's wrong. Not can you. Will you trust God for the details of your life? You see, God doesn't lie. He doesn't leave us. His will is not the easiest road, but it's the right road. He will get you through because he's in the driver's seat. He can navigate you around the potholes, even if it means that at times we need to have a spiritual front-end alignment. Sometimes that's what we need. And we can help each other with that, too. So often, we try to go it alone, don't we? We're, we're hesitant to reach out. There are loads of people in this room this morning who would love to come alongside you if you're having a rough go because they would want someone to come alongside them. And I can tell you, you all will have moments like what I did when Pastor Gibb reminded me with a very pointed question because he knew where my problem was. I had lost sight of the reality that God is good. About a year ago in Gaylord, a man from one of the other Baptist churches in town, I didn't know him well, but he had done some painting for us at our house. And he unfortunately came down with cancer and he died right before Christmas. A man named Chad. Good man. Also ordained as a minister, but he didn't pursue you know, full-time ministry. Large family. And what he had his adult children continue to repeat to him every time that they were with him in his last several days. He says, I want you to repeat this. There is never a time when God is not good. And he reminded them of that. And I thought, what a wonderful testimony to his faith because he, he was literally like Job in many ways. Many of the tests we have in life and the injustices that we go through are different levels of inconveniences. It's not that they're not wrong, but how blessed that we are, because very often there are levels of inconveniences. But when we have terrible injustices and tragedies, we need to remember, we need to trust God for the details of our life. We need to trust him, we need to walk with him, we need to talk with him, but don't ever lose the amazing power of hope. It's hope with a capital H. God will persevere with us to the end. And no matter how many potholes we experience, he's with us every step of the way. And the best part is that he's not done yet. He's active in your life, but he's coming again. We don't know when, perhaps very soon, but he's coming again. Until that time, we're on this pothole-filled road of sanctification, but we're on it together. And remember, he's in the driver's seat, and he knows what he's doing. He's God, and we're not.
So as we prepare to transition to our time of communion, we're going to go to silent prayer for a moment, as we often do, and I'm going to ask you to think of the times in your life where you've started to lose hope, perhaps because you, you took your eyes off of the Lord, and I've shared with you how I did that. And I wasn't just a, a young man in graduate school where it's easier to not have life's perspective. I was the one they called Gramps, and I had lost my perspective. That was exactly what Satan wanted me to do. And I was so grateful that I had a pastor who was skilled and experienced to see the symptoms, to know what they were, and to ask me just the right question with just the right amount of force, neither too much or too little. And I was so grateful that he pulled that pebble out of my dike. It was gut-wrenching, but it was absolutely necessary. Have you ever had a moment where you needed somebody to pull the pebble, and they didn't, and you're still, your emotional trash can is still filled? Before we come to the table this morning together, I'm going to ask you to just take a moment. Think on those things. Ask God to help you with that. Ask the Holy Spirit to heal you. And then we'll come together and we'll partake of this ordinance known as the Lord's Supper. Let's go to silent prayer at this time.